made their way to their seats. Uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Our righteous Father, we give you thanks for allowing us to study uh, what you have um, have told us about your uh, your uh, day of worship, your appointed day of worship today, Father. We ask that you would help us, that we would learn, that you would help me to uh, teach this doctrine well. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen. So today, we are continuing our study in the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Uh, we are still on chapter 22 of relig religious worship and the Sabbath. And uh, today, we're going to be going over basically the second half of this chapter, which is on the appointed day of worship. But uh, by way of review, could anybody tell me what we talked about last time and why it was important? Oh, no, no problem. Uh, I, I appreciate the fact that you weren't even here and you could tell us uh, what we talked about. Uh, yes, we were going over the regulative principle of worship uh, last week that our worship is to be constrained by what God has uh, what God has commanded in his word. We are not to go outside of those bounds uh, because when you do, ultimately you end up in worship that is not pleasing to God and you call into uh, question um, God's wisdom and the sufficiency of the scriptures because you're saying that they were not complete um, and not able to give us all that we needed to uh, to know and to do in order to worship God as he would be worshipped. So uh, we constrain our, our worship to and conform it to what has been laid down in the scriptures, and we don't go beyond that. Um, so today we'll begin with uh, question number seven. Um, and this is actually also a good review of a topic we went over last week. Um, so number seven is, is there a specific locale where God is to be worshipped in the new covenant? Explain your answer. So in light of what we talked about last week, does anybody have an answer for that? Exactly. So as we went through uh, last week as a proof text, um, the story of um, uh, Jesus uh, uh, meeting the Samaritan woman at the well, the Samaritan woman um, basically saying, we, uh, we worship in this mountain, this mountain in Samaria, and um, uh, the Jews worship in uh, Jerusalem. And Jesus said, uh, starting at verse 21 of John 4, Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. So, in the old covenant system, worship was in a prescribed place. It was in Jerusalem at the temple. Jesus contrasts this now that in the new covenant era, worship is to be conducted everywhere and in spirit and in truth. So there is no longer any appropriate locale. Well, everywhere is an appropriate locale, essentially, for uh, us to worship the one true and living God. But there is a confusion between the word church. We refer to this building as a church, but the church is the body of believers. Exactly. You don't have to come to the church building to pray or to worship. Exactly. In, in, the, uh, in the early New Testament era, we see that the church was actually meeting in people's houses, not a dedicated building. 
Yeah, it's true. We could we could meet out in a field. It doesn't matter where we meet necessarily, as long as we are worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Yes. So that is an example, not a command necessarily. Uh, and um, so while was commanded is uh, what we should do. And sometimes example, example is a little bit different. And also I will note that there's at least one example in the New Testament where they met in um, a school. Like there was some uh, teacher that had his own school and they met there. So it's not constrained necessarily to people's houses. It can be wherever. Yeah. Yep. Yes, exactly. So it's important to know, even if we lose this building for whatever the reason may be, we still are a church that um, this building doesn't define what the church is. The body of believers define what the church is. So moving on to uh, question number eight, provide a brief outline of the paragraphs dealing with the Christian Sabbath. So uh, we're going to just be dealing with the last two paragraphs here. Paragraph seven is dealing with the institution of the Sabbath, and it's broken into two parts. The moral foundation, its moral foundation in nature, and uh, part two, its historical progression. And then paragraph eight is the sanctification of the Sabbath, uh, with part one being the declaration that it is to be kept holy, and part two being the specific elements to keep it holy. So could I actually get somebody to read paragraphs seven and eight for us? As it is the law of nature that in general, a proportion of time by God's appointment be set apart for the worship of God. So by his word in a positive moral and perpetual commandment, binding all ages in all ages, he hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day, and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath, the observation of the last day of the week being abolished. And paragraph 8. The Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord, when men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering their common affairs aforehand, not only observe and holy rest all and holy rest all day from their works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employment and recreations, but are also taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. Thank you. And then, because we are actually going to be going through the uh, the Sabbath, could I get somebody to read the fourth commandment. This would be Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. That is the fourth commandment. And if nobody volunteers, I can call on people. Okay, Kev. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gate. 
six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and covered. So here we see that a day is declared, specifically the seventh day, that it is to be kept holy, uh, that there's no work to be done, and that's a means by which it is to be kept holy, and ultimately that this is for God. God has declared it. Um, moving on to question nine. What is the peculiar character of the Sabbath commandment indicated by its description as a positive moral commandment? So as we read in the, uh, in the portion of the confession, it was described as both positive and moral. But uh, before we actually answer this question, can anybody give a description of what positive and moral actually mean in this context? Positive is you shall, not the negative of thou shalt not, thou shalt not. So it's more like the grammar than it is like the feeling so not necessarily in this context, although that is a, that is a definition of positive, obviously. Um, in this context, positive law would be law instituted by God that isn't necessarily, or is a, is a covenant specific. Uh, it's arbitrary in the sense that it's not a requirement by the nature of things. Um, so it may not be, may or may not be universally binding. An example of a positive law would be something like the Old Testament sacramental system, uh, sacrificial system. Obviously, for the Jews at that time, that was something that they needed to do. But in the New Testament era, we don't do that. That's a, uh, that's a command that's been abrogated. It does not apply to us. And this is in contrast to moral law. And that's law that is universal and binding on humanity because of the nature of things, how God has created the universe. It's wrong to murder because of the nature that we as humans are made in the image of God. And therefore, no matter where you are living in human history, it's always wrong to take someone's life. It, that's not covenant specific. That's just you, a universal truth. So when we talk about moral law, these are laws that are universal and apply to humanity throughout history, whereas positive laws are instituted by God. And maybe it may be immoral for someone to disobey if they're in that covenant relationship. It is not necessarily binding on all of humanity. So then we come to the question, is the Sabbath commandment both moral and positive? And the answer is yes, it is. Um, the Sabbath is related to the worship of God or to keep it unto the Lord. Um, and a couple other uh, proof texts to show that the Sabbath is about worshiping the Lord. Leviticus 23, 3. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work therein. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. And um, the interesting part of that is that it's a holy convocation. What is a convocation? Some of your translations might render it as assembly. It's the people of God assembling together. For what purpose, obviously? Just to hang out? No, it's to, it's to worship uh, our God. And then um, Isaiah 58, 13 through 14. Uh, this is um, God condemning the Israelites for their uh, bad practices, but then he goes on to tell them what they should do. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord honorable, and shalt honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own world, words, 
Then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord, and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob, thy father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. So here, God is telling the Israelites, right now you're celebrating the, uh, the Sabbath like it's about you. You're doing whatever you want to do on this day, but really you need to treat it as holy unto me. Call it a delight and honor the Lord. So ultimately, we know that God wants the Sabbath day to be about honoring him. That was Isaiah 58, verses 13 and 14. So the moral component of this commandment is that men know they need to worship God. This is a a portion that's written on the hearts of men, that we know there is a God and that he is worthy to be worshiped. What's positive about this commandment is the fact that it's enacted upon a specific day. In the old covenant era, it's enacted upon Saturday, and the new covenant is on Sunday. Obviously, there's nothing in nature that would give us any indication that, oh, Saturday is the specific day to be, that God is to be worshipped on. Um, that's something that God has to let us know, because otherwise we would have no idea. We couldn't have even uh, said necessarily that he should be worshipped one day in seven. Why not one day in 10 or one day in five, whatever the case may be. We needed God to step in to let us know what day that we should gather to worship him on. And that's the positive aspect of this commandment. And uh, it's important that we recognize these two, uh, these two parts of the commandment, because if the Sabbath command was merely positive law, then we could legitimately say, well, maybe it isn't binding on believers today. But because it's at least in part moral, it is binding. So we need to at least work that out in some sense during the new uh, covenant era. And then we'll get into why it's important that it's a positive law a little bit later in the discussion. So um, moving on to question 10, what are the three major arguments for the moral character of the Sabbath commandment? So the first, before we even ask this, why do we even need arguments for this all at all? Is it not obvious. And um, the, uh, we need arguments for this because at least in uh, mainstream evangelicalism, this isn't actually a popular idea. Um, churches may gather on Sundays, but that's more due to tradition than it is an understanding of the theological reasons of why we'd gather on Sunday. If you were to stop a random Christian on the street and ask them why they met on Sundays, do you think they would be able to give a good answer for that? Yeah, they might be able to say, well, because Jesus rose on Sunday, but I don't know that they'd be able to give a deeper reason than that. So uh, we're, we're in an era where this doctrine has been neglected. And then we're actually in an era where um, some people uh, don't believe this, or actively believe that this doctrine is incorrect. And there's um, se- uh, there's uh, several texts that, at least at a first glance, would seem to indicate that the commandment has been abrogated in the New Covenant era. So I'm going to read from a couple of these. Um, Colossians 2.16, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect to a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days. So here Paul is saying, don't let anybody judge you if you keep these things. Holy days, new moons, or Sabbath days. So at least at first glance, that would seem to say that um, we're not to be judged if we don't keep it. Then we have Romans 14, 5. One man esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. 
Oh, well, we'll, we will uh, address all these proof texts a little bit later. I just want to go through and lead out the arguments. Yes. Uh, the other thing for, for congregational worship, for worship where everybody's concerned, there has to be one day where people are off from their jobs, their work, and um, it ha there has to be unity for one day. Otherwise, everybody wouldn't be able to worship as a group. Exactly. Yeah. Um, we can't we can't engage in the worship of God if we're not resting from our secular labors. Remember, where things were shut down, except for what was absolutely necessary. And then I think, oftentimes, even today, when we go to a restaurant to eat on Sunday, I'm guilty of causing someone else to have to work on that day to feed me. So I, I, there's a little bit of a, a discussion in this church about what to do with eating out on Sundays. Um, and I, there, are, there are people of different opinions on that. But I, I would actually agree with you there. Well, that's getting into the application of whether or not that's part of the positive law aspect of the commandment or the, uh, the moral component, which... Um, I have a blog post on that if you'd like to read that. And then Andrew has a blog post on the uh, counterpoint uh, if you would want to read that and get an understanding. But I won't really dive into that One here today. Fellowship meal so people can do the Sabbath here. Yes, exactly. And then um, a final uh, um, Bible verse or uh, Bible passage uh, that is presented to say that the uh, Sabbath has been abrogated. Galatians 4, 9 through 11. But now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? Ye observe days and months and times and years. I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. So here Paul is saying, you're observing all these things, days, the holy days, uh, the monthly um uh, ceremonies, celebrations, all these things. And he's saying, I'm afraid for you, lest I have bestowed my labor in vain, saying, I, I, I don't know if, if you're Christians, if I labored for you, but ultimately it, it was for nothing. Um, and be... be mm-hmm. Well, hopefully by the time I've gotten through all this, we'll have answered any questions. And if not, feel free to talk to me afterwards, obviously. Um, but it's because of passages like this that uh, oftentimes uh, Sabbatarians, those that would hold to a uh, continuation of the Sabbath commandment, are actually accused of being legalists and not Christians. And I want to say definitively right here, if you're keeping the Sabbath commandment to be justified, you are not a Christian. Um you're, you're engaged in legalism. We don't hold that you must keep the Sabbath commandment in order to be justified, just like we don't say that you have to keep any portion of the law in order to be justified. Because ultimately, to be justified by the law means you'd have to keep every single part of it, and no man has been able to do that. In order to be justified before God, you need to have your sins atoned for, and that is by believing in Christ. Christ was the sacrifice for sin, 
And by believing in him, we are, our sins have been atoned for, and we are credited with his righteousness. That is the only way to be right with God. So when we say that uh, we uphold the Sabbath command, it's not for the sake of justification. We, as with any other moral commandments, the reason why we say you should do it is because it is moral. It is good. We want to honor God and do good. It's not because we're seeking to be justified by it. And then um, there, uh, throughout the New Testament, you see um, Jesus getting into controversies with the Jews over the Sabbath. And some have taken that to mean that Jesus was anti-Sabbath, essentially. So um, before I actually deal with the counterarguments to all these arguments that I presented, I actually want to give a positive case for the Sabbath command. So we'll give a positive case and then um, we'll deal with the uh, arguments one by one. So briefly, just want to give a uh, background on hermeneutics. So what are hermeneutics? Hermeneutics are the study of how do we interpret the Bible correctly? Because ultimately in this discussion, you're going to run into certain issues. It's like, well, you have this concept of moral law, but where does the Bible ever say moral law? Well, it, it doesn't say those specific words, but we understand that we can think in categories and have things applied in the Bible throughout. So, for example, the word Trinity does not occur in the Bible. It doesn't. You can read through your Bible and it's not there. But we recognize the word Trinity is a valid uh, word to describe what we think the nature of God is like. So just because the word doesn't exist doesn't mean the concept doesn't exist. So uh, if we want to prove the concept of moral law, that's law that's abiding throughout human history in terms of its application, and then we say that the Sabbath is part of that moral law, then we've proven that the Sabbath is actually valid for uh, people today. So um, a good spot to prove that the moral law is binding is Romans 2. Could I get somebody to read Romans 2, 12 through 15? For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these, having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. So here, Paul, it being the letter to the Romans, is writing to Romans. Um, it's not necessarily Jews, although it would probably still be a, primarily a Jewish church at this point. But what he's saying is those that have sinned without the law will perish without the law. Why? Because ultimately that law is written on their hearts, as he goes on to say later. So their conscience lets them know, oh, that's wrong, and they still do it anyway. So they've broken the law, whether or not they have the law in front of them written down like the Jews do or not. This law is is more universal than just Jew and Gent or just Jew. It's Jew and Gentile. It applies to and condemns them both. Now the question then becomes what law is being referred to here? And if you read in context a little bit earlier, he was talking about things like adultery or idolatry, things in the Ten Commandments. And ultimately we recognize these are things that are universal in nature. It's always wrong to commit adultery. 
Um, we would recognize that. It's always wrong to be idolatrous. God isn't God here, but not over there. He's God everywhere. So it is always wrong to be idolatrous. These things laid out in the Ten Commandments, we would recognize as the moral law, the law that will condemn people no matter where they are, what people group they're a part of. Um, so thus this law, while it's contained in the Old Covenant, obviously, it's written down in the, uh, in, on the tablets of stone in the Old Covenant, it extends far beyond the Old Covenant. And that is exactly what we would call moral law. So then the question becomes, is the Sabbath part of this moral law? So um, I have several arguments. I think Waldron had just said he wanted three, but we're going to go through more than just three. Um, the first argument is the Sabbath command is a creation ordinance. Could I get somebody to read um, Genesis 2, 1 through 3? Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So here we see God instituting the Sabbath at creation. This is not instituted at um, during the Mosaic Covenant. It happens before, and because it happens before, we would expect it to apply to all men. Um, just like the institution of marriage was instituted at creation, um, and that obviously applies for as long as we are living on this earth, um, we would expect the Sabbath to also continue as an institution. And for further proof of that idea, um, I'll quote from Jesus in Mark two twenty-seven, and he's speaking to the Pharisees here. And he said unto them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So you'll note that it doesn't say the Sabbath was made for the Jews. It doesn't say it was made for the followers of God. It says the Sabbath was made for man. So when was it made for man? Well, obviously at creation, when there was one man, Adam, that is when God instituted the Sabbath. So it is more universal in nature than just applying to the Jews. And ultimately, um, because people do try to make the argument that, no, this is purely a uh, Mosaic Covenant thing, the institution of the Sabbath, even before the Mosaic Covenant is ratified, we see examples of people keeping the Sabbath. Could I get somebody to read Exodus 16, verses 23 through 29? Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? 
See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the Sabbath. So, as should be obvious, Exodus 16 comes before Exodus 20. So it becomes before it comes before the uh, Ten Commandments. So here, before the Mosaic Covenant is instituted, God is telling the Israelites they need to keep the Sabbath, and he's actually condemning them for not having kept it. So this is happening prior to the Mosaic Covenant. And thus, it sounds like he really made this clear to mankind at some point. It's not recorded that way. Yes. I would I would agree with that, yes. Um Amen. Exactly. Um, all right. So moving on to argument number two, um, the fact that the Sabbath is part of the Ten Commandments um, indicates that it is moral law. Um, we as Reformed people normally say that the uh, Ten Commandments are the summation of the moral law. Um, and this is uh, demonstrated in a couple uh, different ways. This is the law that was written on the tablets of stone by the finger of God himself. The rest of the commandments uh, were uh, written down by Moses, but these were explicitly written by God himself. These tablets are the uh, tablets that ended up in the, um, the Ark of the Covenant, right? So they represent something uh, important there. Um, and as I alluded to earlier in the discussion of Romans uh, 2, these are the commandments that appear to be written on the hearts of men, because in context he was talking about the Ten Commandments, and then he goes on to say that this is the law that was written, or he goes on to say the law was written on the hearts of men. And um, thus, if the Ten Commandments are moral law, we would expect the Sabbath commandment, which is contained in the Ten Commandments, to also be uh, moral law. Uh, we used to have somebody who attended church here, um, Jim Garcia, and he would make the joke that was effectively like, Oh, we're 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 good Christians here in uh, in America. We keep all nine of the Ten Commandments. the The joke, of course, being that it would be extremely odd that nine out of the Ten Commandments would be the ones that we would keep, but one was just hanging out there for some reason. That would that would immediately strike us as odd that um, one would not be moral if the rest were moral. Uh, the third argument is the fact that it is actually continued in the Lord's Day. And I'll expand upon this a little bit later, but the fact that we do see those in the New Testament celebrating the Lord's Day in a manner similar to celebra the celebration of the Sabbath indicate that it's moral law. Um, if believers of God, uh, regardless of the covenant they are in, are engaging in the same behavior, it gives credence to the idea that it's universal in nature. Then um, other nations in the past actually upheld the Sabbath. Several of the ancient nations actually did this. The Babylonians, for example, they had a form of the Sabbath. It's not exactly the same as the Jewish Sabbath. For example, they were more loose on what kind of work could be done. But um, they did have some sort of Sabbath. And while 
a lot of times this is used as a politic against Christianity as the as an accusation that the Jews just copied their idea from the of the Sabbath from the Babylonians. I actually think it's the reverse. It's uh, showing that the Sabbath was instituted at creation, and even these ancient uh, ancient nations had some memory of that, and were continuing to practice that. And then, um, final argument: we have a focus on it in the New Testament. We have a lot of examples of Jesus um, being in conflict with the Pharisees over uh, how the Sabbath is to be done. And again, it would strike us as odd if the Sabbath isn't to be um, continued in the uh, Christian era that um, there would be so much of an eff- emphasis on this. We wouldn't we wouldn't expect that um, because that's those scriptures ultimately wouldn't have much of a purpose for the church age. And yet it's it's all over the uh, the New Testament. So um, going through the uh, the arguments that we listed out in support of um, the Sabbath being abrogated, I want to deal with them one by one. Um, so under the idea that, you know, well, Jesus was anti-Sabbath because he uh, conflicted with the Pharisees over it, uh, the Bible doesn't actually say that. For example, in uh, Matthew 12, 9 uh, through 13, and this is, again, Jesus um, being in conflict with the Pharisees over the Sabbath. And when he departed thence, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man which had his hand withered. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days that they might accuse him? And he said unto them, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep? And if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore, it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. Then saith he to the man, stretch forth thine hand, and he stretched it forth, and it was restored whole, like as the other. So you'll note, Jesus doesn't abrogate the Sabbath here. His argument is not, oh, well, everything is lawful to do on the Sabbath, or, oh, the Sabbath doesn't apply here anymore. His argument is, no, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It's lawful to do this on the Sabbath, not that it's lawful to do anything on the Sabbath. So here we see Jesus upholding the Sabbath commandment. So moving on to Colossians 2.16, which I'll remind you read, uh, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of unholy day or of the new moon or the Sabbath days. Now, uh, you might not recognize it, but this this triad pattern is actually um, a pattern that we see throughout the new uh, the Old Testament: holy day, new moon, Sabbath. For example, in Hosea two eleven, we read, "I will also cause all her myrrh to cease, her feast days, her new moons, and her Sabbaths, and all her solemn feasts." So you see this this particular uh, pattern that's being used here. So what does that pattern ultimately end up meaning? Well, I think Isaiah 1, 13, and 14 shed a little bit of light on this. Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. I cannot, uh, I cannot away with them. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hateth. They are trouble unto me. I am wary to bear them. So here God is condemning the Israelites for their uh, their celebration of holy days because they're not doing it with the right heart, essentially. Yeah. Exactly. But 
notice how he sums up what he's just said. So originally he says the new moons and the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. And then the next verse, he, he calls them the new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hath. So he's calling these appointed feasts, which is interesting because the weekly Sabbath, the seventh day Sabbath is never uh, called a feast. There might be feasts that happen to fall on it on specific Sabbaths of the year, but it's never called a feast. So, yes. And then you also have um, what are called Sabbath years, right? So every seventh year is a Sabbath year, um, which actually I think gets into... <laughs> uh, if you can figure a way to pull that off, let me know. Um, but you'll notice the interesting uh, wording in conjunction with that, because we have multiple types of Sabbaths, right? And in Colossians uh, 2.16, it referred to them as Sabbath days, Sabbath days. Um, so the question is, um, when it's plural like that, is it referring to the weekly Sabbath or not? And I ultimately would say it's probably not referring to the weekly Sabbath. It's referring to uh, the Sabbath feasts that happen throughout the year. Um, there are some brothers that disagree with me. Uh, for example, Richard Barcelos does think that it refers to the uh, the Sabbath, um, the seventh-day Sabbath, but he makes the argument that um, essentially is referring to the Jewish implementation of the Sabbath because you have um, it in conjunction with the new moons and the feasts, basically all that, all the uh, Old Testament ceremonial law in regards to the Sabbath, that that's being done away with, but not necessarily the moral principle behind it. But ultimately, I would say that this is probably just a reference to those Sabbaths, uh, the um, the other Sabbaths that are being done, done away with. We never see the word Sabbath plural in the Old Testament as a reference to the weekly Sabbath. Um, moving on to Galatians 4, uh, 9 through 11, which again read, um, well, just verse 10. Ye observe days and months and times and years. I'm afraid for you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. So what's Paul talking about in Galatians? In the book of Galatians, he's dealing with Judaizers who've come in and basically said, you need to keep the law in order to be justified. Um, we see that with their um, insistence that people get circumcised, right? And Paul comes out and condemns this as a false gospel. No, you're not going to be right with God because you've been circumcised, or as the case may be, because you keep all these, all these ceremonies. Now, in the, uh, the beginning of the church age, it was sometimes appropriate for the church to keep the ceremonies. For example, we see the church meeting at Pentecost, and that's when the Holy Spirit comes upon the church. So it's perfectly acceptable to keep these, uh, these days, um, especially if you're a Jewish Christian, although it is not a requirement. And if you are seeking to be justified by it, that's when you have a problem. So ultimately, I think what Paul's condemning here is not merely the keeping of days, months, times, and years, but the keeping of them in order to be justified. And then uh, Romans 14.5, one man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. So while even to take the argument that um, some use that this means that all days can be treated alike, it would therefore not condemn us if we were to keep the Sabbath, right? Even to say, even if that's what it truly was saying, um, because it's saying that, well, if you steam a day one uh, above another, then you should keep it as long as you're persuaded in your own mind. But ultimately, I don't, 
is this talking about the Sabbath or is this talking about some of the Jewish holy days in general? In context, it's not necessarily clear, but um, like Galatians 4.10, I would take this in the sense of this is talking about the Jewish festival system as a whole. Um, some Jews, because the Church of Rome at this time is still mostly composed of Jews probably, are keeping the Old Testament ceremonies and some are not. So Paul is saying, well, if you keep those, if you keep the festival of Pentecost, that's good as long as you're persuaded that that should be what you should keep. And if you're not, that's fine. I don't know that it's talking about the weekly Sabbath. And especially if we have the understanding that there's a component of that that is moral law, then we should keep it in the new covenant system. So, uh, lost my place, I'm sorry. Okay, uh, so moving on to question 11. What is the supposed dilemma posed by the alteration of the Sabbath from the seventh to the first day, and what is its solution? So this is, um, the backdrop of this is the argument that you'll run into when you engage with Seventh-day Adventists and Seventh-day Baptists. There aren't too many Seventh-day Baptists anymore, but at the time that our confession was written, there actually were quite a few, and the confession was constructed in such a way to actually exclude the Seventh-day Baptists, the Seventh-day Baptists being those that believed that the, Saturday, the Sabbath was still on Saturday and not Sunday. But even, um, we still see this today with Seventh-day Adventists. They believe the, uh, the same thing. And ultimately, the supposed dilemma is, how can a creation ordinance be altered? Um, we would immediately be skeptical if somebody was trying to alter another creation ordinance, like, say, marriage, as many are trying to do in this day we'd immediately recognize, oh, no, there's something wrong with that. You can't be altering that creation ordinance. So why not here? Why, why are we saying that it's um, alterable? Uh, so the dilemma really is, uh, if the Sabbath is, is moral, it cannot be altered. Or if it has been altered, if God has been altered it, then it must not be moral and therefore not binding. But uh, the solution to the supposed dilemma is the fact that uh, the commandment is partially moral and partially positive law. Um, the positive aspect is what has changed. God has changed it from meeting on the seventh day to meeting on the first day. And he has the right to do that because he is the one who enacted it in the first place. And he is the one who has the right to determine when he should be worshipped. The moral aspect of it has not changed, that we are to gather for corporate worship to honor our God. That moral aspect has not changed. So it's, it's understanding that distinction there, that what has changed. It's not the moral component that's changed about it. It's the positive, um, uh, the positive part of it that's changed. So I want to present some arguments here for the fact that it has actually changed for the first day. Um, so a couple of the arguments are the prominence that's given to the first day. So in the New Testament, we have Christ rising from the dead on the first day. We have Christ appearing to his disciples often on the first day. It'll be either explicitly noted as the first day, or in John's case, he notes that it's eight days later, and the Jews counted days inclusively. So from one Sunday, eight days later for them would have been uh, the next Sunday. So Jesus is appearing, and it's the Bible's explicitly noting that he appears on the first day. Um, the fact that he was taken up to heaven on the first day, and then uh, the fact that the Holy Spirit was given on the first day in Acts 2. Could I get somebody to read Acts 2, 1 through 4?
And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, this might be a little bit obscured because it just says when the day of Pentecost was fully come. But that would be uh, the Sabbath day. Be, uh, excuse me, it would be Sunday. It would be Sunday. So um, they've gotten the Holy Spirit on Sunday. And you'll notice something else interesting there that they were meeting on that Sunday. It's not necessarily that they had been meeting throughout the week, but they were all meeting on that day. And we actually see that pattern continued throughout the New Testament. Um, Acts 27. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. And you'll notice Luke there just in passing says, you know, upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together, break bread and he doesn't explain why it is that they've come together on the first day which you know you might necessarily expect if it was an odd thing but if it was uh if luke expected his readers to already understand why they would be meeting on the first day then it makes perfect sense um and then you have first corinthians 16 verses 1 through 2 now concerning the collection for the saints this is paul talking about taking up a collection for the uh the church in jerusalem that's uh either experienced a famine or an earthquake. I can't remember which one off the top of my head. But regardless, he's talking about taking up a collection for the church in Jerusalem that's in need. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do you. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God has prospered him so that there be no gatherings when I come. So here Paul is saying, I want you on the first day of the week to gather everything together so that when I come by, there's not going to be any gatherings and I can take it and go off. Now, why would that be something that happened on the first day of the week? Well, ultimately, if the church is already gathering together on the first day of the week, that makes the most sense, right? They're all going to be in one place already so they can bring what they've gathered. It'll be in one place and Paul is able to to take it. And you'll note that he said in verse 1, as I have given the order to the churches of Galatia, even so do you. So he's already given the same order to the churches of Galatia, showing that not only is it the Corinthian church that's meeting on Sunday, it's also the churches in Galatia. This appears to be a universal practice of the church that they are gathering on Sunday. Um, and then one final very interesting proof text, uh, Revelation 1.10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Now, um, it doesn't explicitly say in the text, what is this Lord's Day? But um, if we read some of the early church writers, they reference Lord's Day as being Sunday. Um, this was, no, he doesn't. It's a, it's a very interesting distinction. Although we will note that um, in the Old Testament, the uh, the Sabbath was referred to as the Lord's Sabbath. He, he con- uh, God continually refers to it as my Sabbath, my Sabbath. So it's interesting that this would be the Lord's day as in the day that belongs to him. And why would it be the day that belongs to him? Well, he rose again. He conquered death on that day and was vindicated on that day. 
it's his day. And thus we meet on his day to celebrate his death and resurrection. Um, so the, the, the argument still might be applied or uh, asked, or the question might still be asked, but we're still under a creation ordinance that was done back in Genesis 2, right? How can we change God's uh, creation ordinance? How, how could that happen? And um, the answer is, that is a celebration, the Sabbath. Oh, Ben, do you have a question? Oh, okay. All right. Um, uh, the, uh, yes, that was a celebration of the, uh, the old uh, creation ordinance. If you read uh, Exodus 20, it said the reason why you were to do this was because in, seven day, in six days God created on the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested. So that is clearly referencing the Old Testament, um, the creation account in the Old Testament. But... If we are in Christ, we are a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So if there's a new creation, we would expect that there might be a new creation ordinance, or at least a change in the creation ordinance. Whereas the Old Testament Sabbath was looking backwards to what God had done, our Sabbath looks forward. We are new creatures in Christ, and we are awaiting the new heavens and the new earth. So we look forward to that new creation. Now, I'm kind of speculating that God must have told one of the apostles or whomever to meet on Sunday. Yes. And, you know. No, ultimately, I would, I would expect that. Yes. Yeah. The reason why we see the church meeting on the first day isn't because they arbitrarily decided, oh, you know, let's just meet on Sunday. Yeah, ultimately, I do think Christ commanded that, although it is not explicitly recorded for us in Scripture. What were you going to say, Ben? Uh, I was going to bring up uh, two points. One is Hebrews 10.25. Uh, it says, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as in the manner of some. Um, I think that just almost gives... I wouldn't like put more law on it, but it does give this like mm-hmm. negative connotation towards people that aren't meeting together. And you have like all of these different places where the apostles are rebuking these different churches for doing wrong things, right? Like I mean, they're like nitpick it to make sure it's right. But if you have the apostles saying that people are meeting on the first day of the week, they're you know commanding people to do certain things on the first day of the week, and you don't see anywhere where any apostle is rebuking them for not meeting on the Sabbath, but meeting on the first day of the week. And I think that's pretty um, evident. Mm -hmm. The passage in Hebrews is actually interesting because right in the immediate context is actually a warning against apostasy. And then he goes on to talk about, the author of Hebrews goes on to talk about not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, almost like that's a form of apostasy. And it is, ultimately. If we stop meeting together... Not because, you know, we're hindered by providential circumstances, but because we've become lazy or whatever the reason is, we we found we have better things to do with our time. That is a form of apostasy. God has commanded us to meet together, both for our benefit, that we would be benefited by each other as the body of Christ, and also for his glory, that we should worship him. So to neglect that, it's a form of apostasy taken to its logical conclusion. Also, just to, to keep things like universal, in a way to where you can go anywhere in the world mm-hmm. you know where Christians are meeting and you know when they're meeting. Mm-hmm. And that's way better than going somewhere and having to figure out 
when the heck Christians are meeting up and figuring that out, especially back in this time when there was no internet to figure out where they were and when they met. Mm -hmm. Yeah, at the very least, you know when they met. Yes. I just does the fact that it is moral law written on the hearts of man that we're to observe uh, a day to the Lord. Uh, even people who deny that the Sabbath commandment applies today, they, they kind of tacitly do by meeting each Sunday. Like with the saints, it's because it's written on the law of man that God is to be worshipped and that he's to be worshipped in the way that he's appointed. Otherwise, it's not true worship, which means God has to tell us when we're to meet and how we're to worship him. And God does reveal that to us in his positive commandments. In the Old Testament, that was the seventh day. In the New Testament, we see by example, that's the eighth day, or the first day of the week. So it, it's moral law written on our hearts so that God must be worshipped in the way that he's uh, commanded to. And if we do it our own way, it's not true worship. Amen. All right. So to close out, um, I want to bring this back to the importance that this doctrine has for us. Well, knowing doctrine is good. If we don't apply it to our lives, we've essentially wasted our time here, right? Um, it's not the hearers of the word that are doing God's will, but the doers of the word that are doing God's will. Uh, so what does this doctrine actually mean for us? Um, I actually want to quote from our church constitution because uh, in there is a section elaborating on the doctrine of the Sabbath. Uh, we believe that the Sabbath is to be kept holy and set apart to the Lord. We also realize that there are some who must work on Sunday out of necessity. We believe that the fourth commandment, to remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, has not been set aside or vacated by the new covenant, but rather is to be observed by the Lord's day, meaning the first day of the week. We also recognize that throughout history, the observance of this day has been viewed in many different ways as to what is allowable and what is not what is commanded, and what is considered a violation of the fourth command. So while we do not set hard and fast rules, we encourage each individual and or family to prayfully consider uh, how to spend this God-ordained day in a manner that is in keeping with the spirit of the day. And ultimately, I think that's a very good way to do it, a very wise way to do it. Um, ultimately, we in this church are not going to be the Sabbath police investigating every single member saying like, oh, did you break the rules? Like we have this list of rules we want you to follow. That's not, that's not how a uh, new covenant, um, that's not how we should treat one another in a new covenant context. Um, but ultimately, if you have been persuaded by the arguments I've laid out here that the Sabbath is moral law, at least in part, um, you need to consider how best to keep the Sabbath. Um, we do here recognize works of necessity that some people out of necessity have to work on um, Sunday, and ultimately, that's that's not an issue. As we saw Jesus saying earlier, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So, if your job is, you know, a nurse or something, helping people, and you have to work on a given Sunday, where that is not a violation in our eyes. Uh, but to spend Sundays working is going to hamper your ability to worship the Lord. It's gonna it's gonna be hard on it. That's why resting is a portion of that commandment, because in order to worship the Lord. You have to be not working. Um, uh, fellowship in the Lord is good. We don't have to spend every single second of the Sabbath day explicitly being in worship. If we are fellowshipping with one another, that in of itself is a form of worship, although only implicitly. Um, so we can we can fellowship. That's, that's perfectly fine. But we should consider how to best honor the Lord on the Lord's day. Um, so with that closing thought, does anybody have any questions or comments? Yes, Brett. Brother John, 
one is that virginity of the statute is not the point. It's just not the point. Okay? And, and a lot of times, even in, especially even in reform circles, virginity becomes the point. Virginity of the Sabbath is not the point. It's how we how we come to the Sabbath. As our sister said a moment ago, are we preparing for the Sabbath? Do we have a joy going to the Sabbath? Are we happy that God has provided us a day of rest? And uh, more importantly, a day of worship, right? That that's where our heart should be as it relates to the Sabbath. The second thing is we, we should remember that there are various shades on this. There are. And we should be gracious to each other. Not pounding each other on the ground like a tent peg saying no. You know, if anybody could have put religious laws around the Sabbath, it would have been the Apostle Paul for Christ. He was a Pharisee. He would have made it so rigid that it might have been impossible for the first century church to, you know, abide by it except to just falling into a, a complex legal system of trying to maintain the Sabbath. I mean, if anybody would have done it, it would have been Paul, right? But that's not what we find. We find that it's a day of joy, it's a day of worship, it's a day of rest, right? It's there for us. It was given to us. Right? If we come with the right mind, as our brother said, if we come with the right mind into the Sabbath, all things will begin to fall in place. It's a blessing, not a burden. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Sean. Oh, yeah. That's a hard topic. It's a hard topic. It's not one that a lot of people like to easily talk about either. Not really, because it, especially in Reform circles, it can be a very complex one. It's been written about extensively in Reform circles. Thank you, brother, for giving us that blessing. Oh, yeah. No problem. Does anybody else have any questions or comments? Kind of off of that. Like our, our attitude shouldn't be like, oh, it's the Sabbath. What now do I have to not do on this day to enjoy it? Our attitude should be rather, how can I best enjoy this privilege and blessing that God has given me on this day? Set aside everything that's bothering me in the world and to enjoy and rest in God, in his word, in fellowship with the saints. Because as Jesus said, the Sabbath was... Made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. Amen. And the two words reiterate that it's remember, remember the Sabbath, remember what it's all about, and rest. God rest. Mm -hmm. All right. With that, uh, let's close.